No, I'm just, I just put down the books. So that, uh, I'm just going to sit here. You want to sit Playing with fire. Playing with fire. It's poetic. Um, I am the the translation committee. The Pan American Translation Committee has a member of um, the member of the committee is a member of the member of trustees, and they've asked me to give you the remarks that you have explained. I must say that I'm speaking more as a member of the translation committee, and women in the translation community feel that there would be no World Courses Festival without translators and translation, so very happy to uh, represent that. Um, my name is Marianne Newman. I'm here as a trustee of Pan America on behalf of over 7,000 writers, translators, editors, and other members of the Thank you. 
it's my great pleasure to, to pass the baton to Martin Kuchner, who, who will introduce it. My name is Martin Puckner. I teach world literature and drama at Harvard, and it's my great pleasure to introduce and moderate this panel. We will start with Michael Eskin on my left. Uh, Michael is an author whose work ranges across many genres, from aphorisms and personal essays to works of literary criticism. He's here primarily in two roles, I would say. First, as a translator, both from German and French, though he speaks many other languages. And he will speak about his translation of the extraordinary uh, French writer Alexandre Jolien. He's also here in another role, namely as the founder and CEO of Upper West Side Philosophers that published this translation and several other books, and they're here over there on the table. Um, and Michael's one of the people who really who put together this, this panel. From Michael, we will move on to Agnes Walder on my uh, right. Uh, she's a poet, but she's here primarily as the translator of the plays of her and, and poetry of her father, Lajos Walder, a Hungarian uh, writer who was killed in the Holocaust. She herself was also born in Hungary, but moved to Australia at a young age and comes here all the way from Australia to be here and introduce these wonderful um, plays, which were also published by Upper West Side philosophers and are over there on the table. And then we will move on to Jeremy. Oh, I'm glad that there's a light now. I was going to switch <laughs> seats with, with you. Um, Jeremy has translated uh, more than 10 books from Chinese, including a number of novels for which he has uh, received a number of awards, including a Penheim grant. Uh, um, he also writes and translates plays, um, including, and we just talked about this, an adaptation of the great 18th century Chinese novel Dream of a Red Chamber, as well as a number of other plays that grapple with questions of identity and AIDS uh, in, in, in East Asia. So among the three panelists, I think we have much to talk about. Uh, we are dealing here with a real bandwidth of drama from the philosophical dialogues of Alexandre Julien to translated plays from the early 20th century to contemporary drama from East Asia. And I think the kinds of translations we will talk about will have to do, of course, translations between languages, but also different cultural experiences from you know, having AIDS in East Asia to being Jewish in Hungary, and in the case of Julien, being disabled or differently abled a disabled or differently abled philosopher in France. So the way we, will, we are going to do it is that each speaker will have about 10 minutes. There will be some visuals. Uh, uh, some of the speakers will have some visuals. Then we'll have a kind of discussion amongst ourselves for a little bit. And then we'll invite you, the audience, to have a discussion among all of us. And then after that is over, the members of the panel will be very happy to sign books over there. And without further ado, I give the word to my classic. Thank you, Martin. Can you hear me well? Uh, I will, you know, cut into my own time just a little bit and thank Jeremy for, you know, co-organizing this panel. It was really phenomenal and so smooth. I've never organized anything like this. Now I sound like Donald Trump. 
but uh, it was really just wonderful. Um, and I thank you know, Agnes for coming here all the way from Australia, and to Marianne, and I saw Alison, Mark, and Powell, another member of the Pen Translation Committee. I don't see anybody right now. <laughs> and Alex Zucker. So all of the members of the, uh, on the Pen Translation Committee, just uh, as I said to Marianne in the green room, it's marvelous because things actually do get done and real events happen uh, as a result of our discussions, and there'll be two at this Penn World Voices Festival. And last but not least, and all of the people, of course, at Dixon Place, and last but not least, Martin, who, when I asked him to join this panel, immediately said yes, and he's not only a professor at Harvard who teaches drama and probably is the world's most, prime, you know, the premier specialist in drama and theater, but he's also a very good writer, and his book, The Written World, which I've read very diligently, is really fantastic. And he will be signing it over there as well. <laughs> <laughs> so all around, it's just a pleasure to be here. Um, Rob, if, I, I'll just start with a clip. If you could play the first video before I say anything else about Alexandre Jolien. <laughs> Alexandre Jolien is a, I'll read two snippets from this book, In Praise of Weakness, which he wrote at the age of 19 or 20, was published when he was an undergraduate at university at the age of 21 or 22. Um, but he is the only philosopher in the history of philosophy, and by philosopher I mean original philosopher, not academic, but someone who actually writes in his own name without using... Uh, the authority of others as a bulwark for his own thoughts and presents a world, a world view and, and thetically posits what we should think about the world and how we should live. So he's the only severely disabled philosopher in the history of philosophy to the extent that philosophy is a Western invention to begin with. And what you saw here, it's a pretty early clip of his first trip to Nepal, and you didn't have to understand the French. It's difficult to understand as it is, and it's Swiss French because he's originally Swiss. Um, and in this video, he's actually doing quite well. Uh, as he's getting older, uh, he, his movement is even worse, and his speech too, depending on the time of day, depending on the circumstances, might be even less comprehensible. Um, and yet he managed, and this is when we, you know, how we get to the topic of resistance and theater as resistance, having grown up in an institution for the disabled. And I use these words advisedly um, because when he grew up and was growing up in the 70s, he was born in 1975 in Switzerland, uh, there was no understanding of um, the, the subtlety of wording do you say disabled or differently abled? Do you call it a home for the disabled uh, or an institution? 
do you call it, an asylum, a mental institution, and what have you. It was very, very cut and dried, black and white. There were disabled people, there were institutions, and this is how he talks about it in this book. He spent the first 17 years of his life in this institution and was destined to roll cigars. That was his projected job description, and, and make cigar boxes. But something in him was such that he knew that's not quite it for him yet. And then something happened to him. He discovered philosophy on a field trip with his other disabled, I call them inmates, because the institution he describes is not very positive. And he discovered an introduction to philosophy. And as he very memoristically describes in this book, it literally changed his life. And he started reading, even though his uh, educators, that's the way he, he calls them, and caregivers did not believe that he would understand what he reads. Um, they didn't allow him to type, uh, to, to write properly. Uh, but he fought his way out of, his, of this institution miraculously. He fought and fought and fought and convinced everyone that he should go to school, that he should be allowed to first vocational school, then high school. Then he made it somehow into university, uh, for which he had to also study Italian. That was one of the prerequisites in Switzerland. And at university, the rest is history. Uh, one of the professors discovered that he wrote this book as an undergraduate. It got published. He got married. He is, at this point, as he said in this clip, he has two children at this point in his life. Now he has three. So it's a really miraculous story of reimagining oneself and resisting uh, the impositions uh, brought to you from, from the outside, whether it's your community, the world at large, and so on and so forth. And um, one of the reasons why I asked Martin to, uh, to be on this panel um, and why everyone was so excited is not only because you know, the fact that Martin is a specialist, but he has written a book called The Drama of Ideas uh, in which I think he produced the very first analysis, historical, philosophical, of what he calls the Socratic play. So the, the, the kind of genre where philosophers and or writers adopt uh, the Platonic dialogue as a mode of conveying ideas. And this book is the most recent and very unique uh, and sui generis installment of a Platonic dialogue because his very first, Julien's very first book, he has eight books at this point, eight or nine, uh, all of which are bestsellers in France and in Switzerland. Um, and he's, you know, he's a best-selling author in his own right with all of these uh, obstacles in his life. But his first book is a platonic dialogue between, between him and Socrates. But uh, it's so accessible, and when I first read it, and that's why we acquired it and we published it, uh, it's so accessible and translucent and simple in its profundity that I've never read such a book ever in my life before. And to this day, um, it moves me uh, in my very depths, and I hope it'll move you too if I, uh, once I read the two snippets. Just so, a little bit about the translation. One of the problems I had in translating this book, even though it's so simple, was precisely the cultural transfer of our understanding of disability. Because in France to this day, the disabled, uh, it's gradually, you know, there are inroads that are being made in terms of using different terminology. But basically, handicapé is disabled. So, right, and we use the word handicap in, in golf, I guess. There's handicap access and things like that. But we don't apply this term anymore to, to disabled people 
because we understand that, that the environment is as important for our definition and understanding of disability as the person itself. In fact, probably the environment is the problem and not the person. Uh, but in his case, that's the language he's dealing with. It's the same uh, applies to his notion of uh, les éducateurs, his educators. So I had to actually call all kinds of institutions, both stateside and in Europe, to you know, wrap my mind around what these terms actually mean culturally and contextually. So that's one of the beauties of translation. You really, uh, and difficulties, you have to deal and grapple with these cultural non-transferable entities and then I had to make choices as to how to render these French terms um, into uh, a kind of English that will stand the test of time, even if 10 years from now a new word will be invented for disability. So I tried to juggle this, this impossible prediction of the future. Um, <clears throat> but this book is not simply serious and you know, doesn't pull you down. It also, it's very funny and there's a lot of irony and causticity, if you will. And I'll read first a funny passage and then a more wistful, uh, pensive passage. So this is the context. Is, uh, Socrates asks him, so uh, the fact that you had to fight for yourself all the time, didn't it give you power and teach you how to dialogue and engage with other people? And he says, well, yes, but I also had to learn how to use the ruse and the lie. I'm thinking of a particular instance here says Julian to Socrates. I was starving that day, and there, through the staff room's half-open door, I spy, oh, sweet, sweet mirage, a cake, a magnificent tort, beckoning majestically from the director's desk. The room is strictly off-limits. I look right, left, the coast seems clear. I swoop down on my quarry. Woe of woes. The chase ends with the corpus delicti splattered all over the rug. Unbearable anxiety takes hold of me. My possible options flit before my mind's eye. How to cover up the crime? Fear of punishment makes me brace for the worst. At first, I attempt to gather it all up with a spoon. Then, with my bare hands, I try to rub out the stains, but in vain. Then a solution presents itself. Out the window with this whole mess, both rug and cake. <laughs> no sooner thought than done. Luckily, this happens to be the last day of school before summer break, and nobody could care less. Living in a community implies respecting a great many rules. With every limited means at our disposal, we had to use cunning tactics to procure even the barest of necessities. And Socrates asks, If I understand you correctly, in addition to your motto, struggle with and against everything, you also lived by another precept, if you want to survive in a hostile environment, be resourceful. Yes, but not, by, but not in a mean, violent, or malicious way. More in the spirit of adaptation a la Darwin. We resorted to cunning not in order to harm or indulge our whims. Far from it, we use it to obtain the most ordinary things, things that every child ought to be able to enjoy as a matter of course. Is it malice to outsmart the teacher to get an extra sip of water? And I'm going to read a very short bit from the very end of the book where they talk about the significance of normality and what I call non-normality. Again, because calling it abnormality in English would not work. Socrates, you have depicted your life in the center at great length as well as the process of your integration. 
On several occasions, you have drawn a distinction between being normal and not being normal. And you have certainly given me a definition of normality, but are you capable of and sufficiently equipped to dig deeper into the subject? I think I am sufficiently prepared to satisfy your request. Actually, the distinction between normal and not normal has guided my entire life to this day. It's been explained to me that normality can have two effects. It can become a stimulus for the one who feels himself excluded from it. It can trigger a desire to work on oneself and improve, thus aiming to reduce one's difference from others. But normality can also create marginality, exclusion. Many of our caregivers and psychologists talked about this. I would love to hear what they taught you about normality. What are the criteria that allow us to distinguish the person who is physically normal from the one who is not? Well, whatever deviates from the norm is by definition not normal. Many features vary among the population, height, weight, etc. The majority of people will still fall somewhere in the middle. Thus, the more someone deviates from the norm, the less normal he will be. Your gait, your speech are much closer to the norm than my gait, my speech. Consequently, you, Socrates, are normal, and I am not. In medicine, one typically associates the normal person with a perfectly healthy person. Well, this seems clear, Alexandre, but where would you draw the distinction on the psychological plane? You told me that after leaving the center, your behavior was sometimes extreme. You expressed your feelings clumsily. You had difficulty maintaining an appropriate distance with women. You could hardly curb an overly familiar gesture with one of your professors. Where and how would you draw the line between normal and not normal in these instances? Well, as I said before, behavior that we don't consider normal deviates from the norm, from the way the average mortal would behave. Well, in that case, according to your definition, an exceptionally gifted person or an extremely happy person or even a perfectly normal person would not be normal. Hmm, of course, Socrates. Well, then you need to further specify your definition of not normal. Perhaps then, normal is whatever deviates from what one considers acceptable behavior. What do you mean by one? Society at large and its norms? Didn't you just tell me that you used to express your joy through cries and gestures? Would you consider this behavior not normal? <clears throat> it was perfectly normal behavior at the center, and maybe that's how it is among certain peoples. Well, this means then, Alexandre, that it is problematic to define not normal exclusively according to the metric of conformity to the rules of only one society, for these rules may vary. One could use the criterion of being maladjusted. That's how some define physical disability. Well, do you have the impression that you and your companions were maladjusted? No, I don't think so. But what is being maladjusted? Well, that's precisely what I want you to tell me. I've often heard it said that someone who is maladjusted, not normal, also feels unhappy. Is this really the case? Didn't you tell me that ever-joyful Adrien, the village simpleton, was your role model and your source of consolation and strength? And what about that radiant girl at the pool who had witnessed her parents being butchered? Did she feel unhappy? No. Are they an exception to the rule then? Or was she perhaps not normal in a non-normal way? Alexandre, where exactly does the boundary lie that separates 
what is normal from what is not. I have to admit, I don't know. Alexandre, I have an idea. And after that, I think we'll agree on what normal means. Wherever I go, says Socrates, wherever, whatever situation I find myself in, everyone considers me marginal, not normal, and treats me as such. Yet, I walk straight, I obey the laws. Prove to me, demonstrate to me that I, for one, am completely normal. Thank you very much, Michael. That was great. Agnes, are you ready? I'm ready. Uh, Well, I'm Agnes, and I'm glad to be here. And could I please have the first slide? Okay. So, this photo is a photo of my father from... during the graduating class from law at the University of Budapest in 1937. Despite a sizable Hungarian Jewish population at the time, there are only two Jews in this picture. The numerous clauses long enforced by then limited the number of Jews allowed entry to universities in Hungary. There he is, far from the tallest, the future playwright of Tirteos and two other plays, and one of the most significant modern Hungarian poets, stuck way in the back, preferably out of sight. And there he is. And could I please have the second slide? Thank you. Uh, His portrait, now in his books, is one that I grew up with as a child, I was too young when he perished at the liberation of the Gunskirchen concentration camp to have any personal memories of him. Now, just one year, thank you very much. Thank you. I think that is a third one. Thank you. This is in a happier moment. Just one year after the graduation photo was taken, the first Jewish laws in Hungary barred Jews from practicing in any of the professions. Lajos Walder could only get a job as a laborer in a stocking factory. The timeless play, Tirteos, is one playwright's protest and resistance to the rise of Nazism and fascism in the late 1930s and early 1940s. It was written in complete secrecy at a time when Lajos Walder was already serving in a Jewish forced labor battalion. In the play, the conditions of Nazi Germany are reimagined in ancient Sparta during the Second Messenian Wars. Ancient Sparta, by the way, served as the de facto model for the very institution of the Hitler Youth. The play has eerie relevance today, considering the rise of nationalism and revisionism. As but one example, a recent Polish law that defines it a criminal offense to state that Poles were complicit in the Holocaust. The play elaborates on human rights, just laws, and the precarious nature of democracy 
through the legal and philosophical arguments of the play's protagonist, the lame elegiac poet Tirtos. Threatened with infanticide, his dying mother takes him to Messenia, where he is raised as a citizen. Infanticide was practiced in Sparta, as was eugenics practiced in Nazi Germany. Captured by the Spartans, he has an unexpected audience with the powerful military leader, Ephoiupato, who asks him, so what does justice mean to you? Tirtos replies, justice, great lord, is a condition in which everyone can do what anyone else can do, and no one has to endure what he himself mustn't commit. Later, he tells Yupato that in the hands of a single individual, only the, only the sum total of the rights due to him or her guarantee natural law, which is the right of every human being. He goes on, a battle can never rage between two truths, since a truth that brandishes a sword can no longer be a truth. Tirtos calls Spartan law the law of the fist. Fatina, pregnant with her first baby, comes to the realization that in Sparta, women give birth for Sparta and not for themselves. Such is the living blood tax of Sparta, Tirtos tells her, and we are reminded of women's patriotic duty in Nazi Germany to give a baby to the Fuhrer. Fatina becomes Tirtos' soulmate and personal oracle. She warns him that he will earn her with the decisive step. The laws of Sparta are everlasting for Sparta. Whoever saves Sparta saves its laws as well. The rattlesnake only gives up his rattles at the cost of his life. In their panic of losing the war the, with Messenia, the Ephesus elect Tirtos as their commander, but he is not entirely who they expect him to be. Only Amina, the midwife, who cut his umbilical cord, knows that Tirtos was born a Spartan and so ultimately cannot but fall prey to his personal longing. With Tirtos's ingenious tactics, Sparta wins the war. Now, a successful Spartan military commander, Tirtos must face his demons. At his request, Fotina is allowed to enter into the Ephesus tent to plead for her baby boy, born with a tiny hump between his shoulder blades. Oh, but you still dare to talk about order. What order? Whose order? She demands. For nine months, I carried this darling little boy and I craved for him so much that had I craved for a pearl as much, my womb would have given birth even to a pearl. Yet even on a pearl, there is some irregularity, a tiny flaw that is a part of it. But who would think of throwing it back into the ocean because of that? A plebiscite ensues, but Tirtus is full of trepidation. I quote, the right to vote can be a very dangerous tool in the hands of a clever demagogue and a lot of ignorant and foolish voters. 
people will often give power to those who appeal to their feelings and not to reason. The ambitious pedagogue Lucas manipulates the crowd. Dying for the fatherland is a Spartan virtue. He concludes, we have nothing other than our fatherland, yet no greater treasure exists on earth. So why should we give up this treasure? Tietos replies, the concept of humankind is worth any fatherland. I am certain that this last sentence stands as a one and only in early 1940s Hungary. Tietos's tragedy is that he falls prey to his personal longing and as in all Greek tragedies, his suffering is most bitter when he learns that the victory he has wrought has brought about the opposite of what he was fighting for. The play is filled with beautiful theatrical solutions. Perhaps I could mention but one. Sparta is deliberately set on fire to fool the enemy. The stage turns red, and we hear the Marseillaise followed by battle cries, while Tirtos, to inspire the Spartan troops, recites a fragment of the original Tirtos' war song. Ha! Let everyone spurn life as they spurn the enemy. Let death appear to them in the beautiful shades of the reddening dawn. The play's survival is a miracle. Consider that his manuscripts were with us in the log ghetto of Budapest where we barely survived. Consider the blanket bombing of Budapest towards the end of the war. Then during the brief Hungarian uprising in 1956, my family escaped in the dead of night to Austria, ultimately settling at the other end of the world in Australia. My father's manuscript stayed with my grandmother, Mrs. Ida Walder. In 1961, she was allowed to leave Hungary to follow us to Australia. At that time, Hungary was still a communist country. Her belongings were thoroughly scrutinized by the Hungarian authorities. It was fortunate that they considered the bundles of age-old, torn, and yellowed manuscripts to be just the valuous memorabilia of an old lady. And that is how Tietos and the rest of his unpublished works reached us in Sydney. And now I'd like to mention my own resistance as his translator. Following the collapse of the 40-year-long communist censorship in Hungary, Lajos Walder, whose Hungarian pseudonym was Vandor, meaning wanderer, was remembered on Radio Budapest. It was said of him that he was the most credible voice of the times between the two world wars. Without this artist's entirely individualistic voice, the overall picture of that period is incomplete. With the family's help from Sydney, two posthumous publications followed. A volume of his poetry entitled A Poet Lived Here Amongst You was published in Budapest in 1989. It was received with much enthusiasm. Two of his plays, Tirteos and Vase of Pompeii, were also published in 1990 in Budapest. However, by 1991 I realized with a heartache that unless his works were translated, the likelihood of them disappearing again was certain. 
There were, however, many challenges in translation. Hungarian and English could not be less dissimilar. Hungarian is a language of Finnish-Ugric origin emanating from Siberia. It is different in syntax and grammar. Tense can randomly change within a sentence, let alone a paragraph. And gender is undifferentiated. Where English is succinct, Hungarian is long-winded. Translating Hungarian to English is often an exercise in brevity. Lajos Wolde, the playwright, resisted the terror and the injustice that would eventually kill him. And I, his daughter, resisted the disappearance of his remarkable plays and poems by translating them into English. In this endeavor, I was substantively supported by my siblings. So, Tirtoyos, a tragedy is now here in English for the English-speaking world, as the playwright wrote it. Thanks very much. Hi everyone, I'm going to talk about theatre as a site of resistance and the ways in which it functions in this mode. There's something about theatre that is uniquely suited to conveying struggle. It may not have the expansiveness of a novel or the concision of poetry, but what it does have is immediacy. Theatre is ephemeral. It's experienced by a group of people in the same space. It's a unifying experience, which means it's ideally suited to express protest, to instigate change. It's local, it's timely, it arises out of the community it seeks to affect. As a theatre practitioner and playwright, the question I ask when I write a new piece is what conversation are we bringing people together to have? And I bring the same spirit to choosing which works I translate from Chinese. But the very immediacy of theatre can create problems for the translator. And the form itself. When I translate a novel from Chinese... I have a good sense of what cultural context the English reader lacks and an arsenal of tools to remedy this. The gloss, the translator's note, the dreaded footnote. And yet, with theatre, everything is in the moment and everything must be mediated through other practitioners, through the actors and director who don't necessarily have the context any more than the audience does. So there's an interpretive level that needs to be conveyed through the text and the way it's presented. Recently, I've been working on a couple of plays from Taiwan, which is its own challenge in that it's a marginal culture that isn't widely known in the West. And so conveying that, conveying the unique elements of each piece whilst making them accessible to a Western audience is a challenge. A piece that's being presented in this very festival is um, the current one I'm translating, A Fable for Now by Wei Yujia, which is being performed 
at the Seagull Center at 2 p.m. this Saturday. You should definitely all come. Takes on the, um, well, the end of the world. It looks at climate change, corporations, and the military-industrial complex, and asks the question, what right does humanity have to survive when it behaves like this? The playwright is not optimistic. If you'll forgive the spoiler, about a third of the way through the play, the world ends. <laughs> and yet, with great humor, she presents comic vignettes showing how exactly this decline takes place. A war proceeds until only one fighter is left on either side, and these two soldiers must decide whether to kill each other or come to a truce. A panda takes acting lessons in order to remain cute enough to escape extinction. <laughs> the last human being on Earth practices his tour guide routine so that he can pass on what he knows of human civilization to the aliens who eventually discover our dead planet. With such big themes, it's relatively straightforward for the translator to convey to the audience what the playwright intentions are, even though there are elements that are unique to Taiwan. For instance, her expression of climate change is largely concerned with the fishing industry and the plight of the Taiwanese black bear. In these cases, I found it relatively straightforward to preserve these elements and trust that the audience will make the empathetic leap to the extinction of other animals or to other phenomena that sum up climate change for us. But things like climate change and war are large and universal enough that this is relatively straightforward. By contrast, another play I've recently been working on is Taste of Love by Zanzie, also from Taiwan. In this play, a school teacher must conceal that his lover died of AIDS and that he himself is HIV positive which becomes impossible for him when he discovers that one of his students has been abused by a fellow teacher and this teacher threatens to expose his HIV-positive status unless he keeps quiet, putting him in an impossible dilemma. My problems with this translation started with the title. The play is called Ai Zi Wei, which literally is Taste of Love, but sounds like Ai Zi Bing, which is Chinese for AIDS. But any kind of pun in the title relating to AIDS seemed not only crass, but also dated. And indeed, this is something that came up a lot in discussion about the translation. Many people said, oh, it feels like something from the 90s. And this is a problem with cultural context. What do you do when British and American theatre went through a spate of AIDS plays in the 90s? but Taiwan is only talking about it now. How do you convey the immediacy of this and the fact that it's a current topic of conversation in another country without making it seem like, oh, we've, done, we've dealt with that, or, oh, they're behind us, because you know, that's not how issues work. People have different conversations at different times. It's not a race. How does one pre prevent a play like Taste of Love from being received in the same way as nostalgia-tinged revivals of American plays such as Angels in America, Torch Song Trilogy, 
the normal heart that have recently been presented in this country? How do you make it immediate, even if the play has, at the most superficial level, the one thing that says this is set today, i.e. the characters have smartphones and use social media? How does one convey the nuance of Taiwan simultaneously being the first country in Asia to have legalized gay marriage, which happened recently, but also a country where the education system is so cutthroat that parents will not accept any disadvantage for their children, and this includes, in their perception, being taught by teachers who are HIV positive. And when, teachers have the cl when parents have the clout to get these teachers fired, what do we do about their plight? How do you present a culture that is simultaneously, to the Western gaze, both progressive and regressive in different ways? How do you take it on in its own terms and do all of that whilst presenting the story as it is in terms of the conflicts of the characters and their journey? In the case of Taste of Love, it was presented as part of the Arcola Queer Collective's reading series and thus situated within a framework of contemporary queer plays, which helped for the audience to contextualize it in terms of this is happening today. The play has not yet had a full production, and this would be something I would grapple with, with the director, if and when this happened. How to make it not a period piece, or not something that's alien to us, but a vital living conversation that happens to be taking place in a different country. This creates a lot of anxiety for the theatre translator, because while one is typically in the rehearsal room for the first production, one can't, unless one is particularly obsessive, travel round <laughs> the country, around the world, supervising every production. The text has to live on the page, and yet live on the stage as well, without the translator there to shepherd it, in the hands of a director and cast who don't necessarily have the necessary cultural context. All one can do is add a lengthy note and hope for the best, and try to convey as much as possible within the text itself without burdening it with exposition and explanation. The previous two plays I talked about were from Taiwan. I also did one from China by Xu Nuo called A Sun Soon. This was very specifically set in the moment after China abolished its one-child policy and told the story of a woman who experienced this change with dread because she thought she was done with all that having had a baby and now comes under immense pressure from her family to have a second now that it's legally possible. Again, the question is, how does one present this story to a English-speaking Western audience who regard the one-child policy in a certain way? There, is, there are cultural associations with it. How does one, A, challenge the idea that the abolition of the one-child policy is unquestionably a good thing? And how does one create empathy for these characters whose experience is so far removed from our own? In the case of this play, which was presented two years ago at the Royal Exchange in Manchester, England, 
their solution was to present it in a series of plays called the Birth Festival, which dealt with reproductive rights in countries across the world. So again, the framing of it said this is a current issue, but more importantly, that these are issues that concern all of us. That although the specifics of the one-child policy and its abolition might not be something that we deal with, it is another way in which reproduction is used to control women's bodies. And therefore, we gain access through it in that way. And we see that while the specifics might change, certain elements of the struggle are universal. And overall, that would be my argument for continuing to translate theatre, and particularly theatre of resistance. Because there is a kind of global solidarity that comes from understanding the struggles in other places on their own terms. And by knowing this, by broadening our perspective in this way, we understand more about ourselves and our own resistance. And by widening the context in which we exist, we create, hopefully, an environment in which empathy and human understanding bring us all together and reduce the need for further resistance, one hopes. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jeremy. And I actually would like to take some of the points you made about the specificity of drama and theater, that it is its immediacy, it, the, the fact that it creates a shared experience, perhaps even global solidarity, and phrase that as a question for the other two panelists, whether this is something in translating Lars Walder's play or uh, Alexandre Julien's play, that this is something you felt that there was something specific to the form of drama as opposed to novels or poetry that, that allowed you to grapple or imagine that immediacy, the, the creation of a shared experience, and that that somehow fed into the work of translation or the structure of the works that you were dealing with. So what's the, what was the role of drama in, the, in, in that work? Well, I think uh, I, I felt in translating it that uh, it, it would, yes, sorry, yeah. <laughs> I felt in translating it that it was carrying, uh, that, that it was very live in carrying people with it, and that it happened on many levels. Uh, I think that was important in this play, that, that uh, it, it talked about... Uh, the, the terrible situation in Nazi Germany and, 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 and Nazi Hungary and, and so on, but it also talked about Greek tragedy, it talked about uh, infanticide, the inhumanity of that, and, and that a, lot, uh, a lot, of, lot of things have been aired and that the drama would carry, carry the audience. I did feel that. 
And so you're talking about how the play itself works on these two levels. Yes, Germany, even three, even, even three, even three, yes. And in yes. some ways, I think that's also true of Alexandre Julien's dialogues. There's a Socratic mm. element. Yeah, I thought the, the challenge for me in translating Julien's uh, In Praise of Weakness consisted in curbing, well, there were several challenges despite its simplicity. The first was curbing my own desire to create an English text that is stylistically uh, perceivably <coughs> impeccable, polished, and uh, genteel, let's call it that, something that reads mellifluously and sparkles and coruscates on the page. Um, because the immediacy of theater, ideally, is both, if it's educated, let's say, as is the case in his case, it's while being educated and sophisticated and philosophical, discursively speaking, it's also very immediate and lively. So it should be the way people actually talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And yet we know from the Socratic dialogues that were written by Plato, and we don't know how the Greeks actually talk to each other really. <laughs> and my, my ancient, my classical Greek is very poor. It's sufficient to understand certain locutions, terms, and phrases, but so I can't judge. But it would seem to me that it's very literary to begin with, that Greeks did not quite speak the way uh, Plato wrote, in the same way that they didn't speak the way Cicero wrote his dialogues. But people actually do speak the way Julien writes. Hmm. And French, in addition to being the language of this book and this play, is also very specific in its kind of you know, straddling the, the high and the low brow stylistically mm. speaking, very different from English because the words are longer and there we get into semantic length and the words are longer. It's a little more heavy-handed than English, I would say. Um, so and so the, the temptation was, on the one hand, to be very literary and on the other hand, very kind of uh, quotidian and every day-like. So the way Americans talk to each other, which is very different from the way British talk to each other. So I had to juggle that too. Do I translate for a global English audience, more of a British audience, or more a U.S. audience? And all of that, you know, somehow, I think, congealed into something that felt to me as being very immediate while doing justice to the stylistic specificities of French, mm -hmm. and at the same time, uh, in a way, enabling both British readers or Commonwealth readers and U.S. readers not to feel alienated by the English that I'm using. But I also had people read and comment on the translation, obviously, to make sure that I don't, you know, no misprisions in terms of style happen. But th that's the, you know, the, the, the strangest and most difficult task is to create the immediacy right. and make it playable because this play was, you know, it's being, as we speak, performed all over the French-speaking lands. And in fact, if I may, because I forgot, can we play the second video? It's very short. Sure. And so you get a sense that this is actually, it's a philosophical work, but it's actually a real play. It's the one that says um, C. So, C-I-E. Just, a, let's see, it's a very similar theater space. <laughs> Socrates is up there. In the, Nul n'est méchant volontaire. Et peut-être toi, toi-même. J'ai déjà entendu ça quelque part. 
se trouvera-t-il toujours quelqu'un qui, au-delà de sa peur, me rappellera en toute bonne foi que je suis handicapé So you, you saw that the actor was trying to imitate his uh, disability. Yes. In Interesting. Interesting. Socrates was speaking in a very different style. Yeah. Whether you know he was hanging yeah. on the ceiling at one shot, right. but so it is a real place. So it, it's meant mm. to be spoken. That was a challenge. Yeah. And and that was actually going to be my follow-up question. It seemed to me, to some extent, that the two of you were producing knew you were producing something people are going to read. Perhaps even primarily, although. Of course, the plays were written to be performed, and you've just shown us the performance. Jeremy, you were talk, you put much more emphasis, perhaps, on the performance and mm -hmm. as the real, the destination, in a sense, of your translations, right? Yes. Um, I mean, it's a sad fact I've discovered is that normal people don't read plays. Right. Um, right. <laughs> yes. And yes. one tends to experience them through performance, which means as a translator, there needs to be a double consciousness yeah. about how it's received right. as text, right. but also how it's received by other practitioners. And I trained as an actor, so I'm always asking the question, can this line be said? Can this line be said in a way that makes sense? Can the actor formulate the thought behind the line? Mm. And am I giving them the tools they need? Am I giving the director the tools they need to create a production? Mm. Um, and even does this work with a different accent? Should I do a different version of this for British or American mm. performance? Yeah, yeah, Almost yeah. always, yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I, I, it's, it's a lot of different elements because we talk about cultural translation as well as linguistic translation. But in the case of theatre, culture is much more locally specific. Mm. And Taiwanese theatre just looks very different to Western theatre. So that's another gap that needs to be bridged. And expectations are different because so little has been translated from Taiwan that I think people aren't very familiar with certain stylistic elements. So all of that has to be conveyed in a way that's palatable, not just to audiences or readers, but also to theatre practitioners. Mm. I wonder whether this is a moment, since we've been talking about theatre, which includes the audience, of inviting the audience to ask questions, unless either any of you have something else you just feel like you need to get off your chest? Please do. All right. So uh, maybe we can have some light in the audience. I don't know whether there will be a microphone. If not, please speak up. Yes, the front row. Um, Um, about, so you talked a little bit about, um, and then to the kind of large, like this, this is a kind of inspired question, um, about it having a little location and also a on the stage, mm. and that discomfort as a translator, and I'd be interested to hear a little bit about um, what you think about dramaturgy, right, and the, the role that dramaturgy would play in any of these kind of like production elements, right, of an understanding of what ancient Sparta looks like in other um, tradition, like other presentations, and an understanding of what Taiwan is in its, in its you know, realm of infinite production. Um, and I was also really interested to hear if that's a similar uh, discomfort you have to play, right? Of like, yeah, other people are dealing with your stuff. Like, essentially, like, just the actor and director and all those people in the production company gets the play, and that's that. Is it the point of, you know, no return almost? Um, well, to answer the second question first, um, no, I find it liberating. Um, in a way, it, it's a kind of absolution. You just let it out into the world and then someone else can interpret it, um, which is freeing. And it's great to go to the theatre and be surprised. Um, 
almost always in a good way, um, <laughs> by what someone else has made. And I think it's liberating to write a line and then intend it a certain way, and then someone else decides, no, actually, this is funny, and then it gets a laugh, and that's nice. It can be a good surprise. Um, for the first question, I think all theatre translators are, to an extent, dramaturgs, um, because you are already mediating the work, and you have to interpret it. You can't just translate it, even more than with other forms of literature, because of the consideration of the live aspect of it. It has to be received in the moment. You can't put something in and go, well, people can Google that. It has to be instantly legible. Um, so we're already making those judgments. The directors I work with often have a dramaturgical uh, dimension to what they do. And I find that the most successful collaborations have been with directors who are already familiar with the theatrical culture I'm translating from so that they too understand what mediation needs to take place, where it's coming from as well as where it needs to get to. Where there has been um, a separate dramaturg, I found that it really works best if they too are a translator so they understand the process. Um, because it's difficult, you're being faithful to the original, not just the original text, but the ori original intention, the original theatrical culture, and the political and social context that gave rise to this play in the first place. And you need to bring all of that understanding to the rehearsal room when you're trying to put it forward in a form that is understandable to a very different audience with different concerns, whilst preserving that thread to the original. that translation is a kind of resistance, but I think it would have to obviously uh, matter what the subject matter is. Uh, I mean, if, uh, if, uh, if one decided to translate, say, a play that, that is a, a yes play, then it's not such a uh, uh, resistance, but translation itself is a resistance. 
explain to the to the government, to the system, to that. Yes, mm. yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, the, the first, I, I've never thought about it in these terms, but I think you, you really, you hit the nail on the head in, in a certain sense. The primary resistance that the translator puts up is resisting the original. That always is a claim to the mm. truth of the let's call it the message. And as we know, on the committee, and every translator has his or her own theory about what translation should or should not do, which translation is good or bad, uh, the question of fidelity to the original, how far can you stray. So, you know, on the premise that everything is translatable, because if we didn't believe that, then we would be really in dire straits. So let's assume everything is translatable, then it becomes a question of how. And this is where the negotiation of resisting the original's claim to whatever it may be comes in. And I, I mean, I always think of the debates between uh, Nabokov and Edmund Wilson, and Nabokov's late translation of Pushkin, which is unreadable in English, but at the same time, it was never meant to be readable. It was meant to create precisely what Jeremy was trying to argue for, what context. It was not meant to be Pushkin. And so what, what in my own small world, what I've started doing, especially when I translate poetry, and that's, I think, a very good litmus test, uh, you know, as to what kind of theory you subscribe to. And I, you know, I play around with my positions, but one version of it is the, the, the poet who is being translated should also speak with an accent in translation and not pretend to be a native English speaker. Now, the accent has, you know, cannot be too strong, but it can, there, there can be a lilt, let's use a Nabokovian term. There should be something that identifies him as a foreign author. So, for instance, when I translate poetry, I do use rhymes. Even though in the U.S., they're much maligned, right? In England, on the other hand, they're not. Don Patterson rhymes all the time, right? So... This is the kind of resistance that happens, and I think it's a very nice kind of moniker and model to think about it. What do we resist as we translate? I think the uh, slogan for this panel is down with the original. <laughs> <laughs> Another question, yes, in the back. The answer for me, I've translated it to other plays of my father's, but not others. No. No. Yes, but you know, never professionally before, but I did translate parts of a play by Leonid Andreev, who's a Russian playwright, a symbolist playwright, playwright uh, The Life of Man, which came out, I believe, in 1911, a long, long time ago for a seminar. So, no, I'm not a, a theater translator in principle. So that was my really f my first venture, and I only did it because it's also philosophical work. If it had been a just straightforward play, I don't think I would have done it. I would have hired someone else to do it. Is there such a thing as a straightforward play? I don't know. <laughs> as I said it, I thought to myself, oh, "I'm getting into probably."
performances before you undertook the translation? Michael and Agnes, have you seen, did you see a performed version of the play but I, I should mention that I did do a number of summer courses of directing plays just to get an idea because I was aware of my shortcoming of not, not having translated other plays. So I, I did try to complement with that. Have you seen a production of the play before you translated it? These, not yet, but I'm hopeful. Yeah. Yes, well, I, I did see... I did see, um, but what I did in order to get myself in the mood and the, the mode, I watched lots and lots of video clips with Julien, and he's, she, since he's all over the internet, to just to get a sense of his uh, stylistic face. What does he sound like when he writes? Because he, he dictates his text. He doesn't write. He can't write. He's too shaky for that. So everything is actually spoken language mm. with him. Interesting. So it was, in, a, in a way, it was difficult and easy. Because his style is always oral, uh, but I did watch, you know, what I could uh, of the plays, of the performances of this particular play that are available. Uh, but I didn't fly to France to actually attend a whole performance. But it might still happen. Hopefully, in the U.S. in English. Yeah. Uh, where possible, not always, but I try to. Hmm? Oh yeah, I try to at least get hold of video of the performance just to get a sense of the playwright's intention and how it was originally carried out because that's not always apparent on the page and some things that aren't immediately apparent become clear when you see how they were performed and then that gives an idea of what you're trying to convey in English then. Well, this is maybe a good way to conclude. Um, stick around. We'll be around. We'll sign books. We'll be happy to chat and turn, start the kind of informal uh, phase of the evening. But let me thank all my co-panelists and the organizers of this um, panel. Did you want to say something? I, I just would like to invite you to the other translation events at the festival. There's a Very good. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. That's great. Yeah.